0: It's time for a new series to begin, to take us through the fall and right up to Christmas. And as I was looking, we had about 12 weeks between now and December. I don't know if that's shocking to you, but that's some information that you can just do whatever you'd like with that information. I thought to myself, looking at that, is there any book of the Bible that's kind of got a—not a short book, not a long book, a moderate-length book— um, maybe something that would challenge us as a church, perhaps a different genre than one we've done this year. We've done prophecy. We've done a letter of Paul. We've done a topical survey of the Bible. We did some Deuteronomy in the beginning, countercultural. And, and so for God to just put the icing on the cake, to do all of those things, maybe a book that starts with a baptism would just be great, if we could find something like that. Uh, and then maybe just since in December, we transition on into Lottie Moon Christmas uh, month, talk about missions, if we could just have a book that ended with the Great Commission, it would be great if we could find some book that did that. Is there such a book? And the Lord said, Mark. Mark is that book. And so, Mark is a gospel, a biography of Jesus' life. It begins with the baptism of Jesus. It ends with the Great Commission of Jesus. I've not preached through Mark here. Uh, i have not preached through any gospel here at Calvary Hills. And so I just got the sense from the Lord that what we needed next was to ask the question, the simple question, what does it look like to walk with Jesus? What does it look like to walk with Jesus? I found that whether you're a new, a new Christian, you're trying to figure things out, uh, whether you've been at this for a long time, that question What does it mean to walk with Jesus never, ever loses its relevance in your life? It's the one that never goes away. It's one that you never quite feel like you've got it all figured out. As we think about our text today in Mark chapter 1, I want to do so through the lens of Mark's unique purpose for writing. So, how many of you guys just like, you're one of my people that you really love the history and you love the context and that's your thing, okay? This is, you know, series starters, are that. Okay? So, I got a little something for you here. All right? Well, I want to look at Mark's unique purpose for writing. All four Gospels had a purpose for writing. All of the authors of those Gospels tweaked and edited their Gospel in a specific way that they chose to do. And there's, there's more to it than Mark is just the shortest Gospel. Although Mark is the shortest Gospel, it's 16 chapters compared to Matthew's 28 chapters. It's believed that Mark's gospel was primarily targeted to a Gentile audience and probably a Roman audience at that. The early church fathers almost universally asserted that Mark wrote this gospel with the apostle Peter as his primary source. So if you're thinking, wait a minute, I saw Mark in the book of Acts, and he showed up after the fact, how does he know all this information? He never walked with Jesus. Well. It's believed that Mark and Peter were very close and that that's where most of this information came from. That he wrote this to and from Rome, Italy, in the early 60s A.D., near the time when Peter himself was martyred. Throughout church history, it has been taught mostly that Matthew was probably the first gospel written. That's even why they put it first in the order, and because so much of the content of Mark is contained inside of Matthew's gospel, have you ever read the first those three first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and thought there's a lot of the same stories in here? You ever thought of that before? There's a reason why they call those the synoptic gospels. In case you like a, a seminary word, there's a word for you: the synoptic gospels. Uh, they're very similar in content, and and John is the uh, the oddball. He's the guy out by his, doing his own thing. Mark has traditionally been cast aside throughout Christian history because it just seems like an abridged version of Matthew. So people were like, well, why would we just read the abridged Matthew unless we're pressed for time? However, in the modern era, biblical scholarship has changed its perspective to what is now called Markan Priority. Mark in priority. Angelo, where's that seminary word for you? you you hear? There it is. We talked about that this week. He heard it in his class. Believing that Mark was actually the first gospel of the four written. And that Matthew and Luke possibly used Mark as a source to compile their gospel and build upon it with additional stories that they had. This idea that Mark was written first revived interest in this book in Uh, what had mostly been ignored, the most ignored of the four gospels. And so, I, an intellectual, have always jokingly called Mark a man's gospel. When people talk to me about the book of Mark, I've always just said, you know, Mark, that's a man's gospel. Now, let me tell you what I mean, not in a sexist way, all right? I say that because Mark is very to the point in in its writing style, as men tend to be. It contains more of what Jesus does than what he taught. So, there are 18 miracles to only four parables in Mark. That's a different ratio than to Matthew and Luke. There's no genealogy. There's no big story of this begat this and they begat that. And There's none of that. There's no Christmas story. No baby Jesus in a manger. There's no sermon on the mount. The language used is more raw and unfiltered. It sounds like everyday common Jewish speech as opposed to Luke, who's very smooth and slick, the doctor man had a great style about him. Mark loves the word immediately. For a fun exercise, every time you see the word immediately in the gospel of Mark, maybe you want to just make a note of that or circle it, but it's in there a lot. It's like you're in an action movie. You don't have a chance to catch your breath. As soon as this happens, immediately Jesus went here. And then immediately Jesus went to the mountain, and then immediately the crowds came. That's, Mark wants you to feel like it's hurried and rushed and that there is a lot of action in the life of Jesus. And while some 80% of Mark's content can be found in Luke, and some 90% of Mark can be found inside of Matthew, that 10% that is unique to Mark is really unique. He portrays Jesus' disciples as confused and not understanding at all what Jesus is up to, unlike any of the other four Gospels. He highlights Jesus' emotions in depth. He includes sentences that just seem raw and strange, things like when Jesus' family is concerned about Jesus, they're worried about his mental health. But perhaps the dominant theme in the gospel of Mark is the kingdom of God. In Mark's mind, and likely Peter's mind as the source, the kingdom of God came to earth when Jesus came to earth. And you'll see presented early on page one of Mark, of this gospel, Jesus is established as the king in full power with a clear mission from God. And as Mark unfolds, the disciples will routinely struggle with this fact that their king, who they were very excited to get behind, would also be a suffering Messiah. They're going to struggle the whole gospel with this fact that we have this king who is victorious and we believe in, yet he sure does suffer a lot that's going to be hard for them, and it's hard for us as we read the Gospels as well. So today's message is entitled, The King's Coronation. As we see, this is the formal beginning. I love Mark. It just jumps into it. Boom, you're in the water, all right? Love Mark, so that's why we're doing it. Uh, Pray with me before we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless this time, Lord, that we would be able to enjoy your Word today, that we would see what you're doing, what you're up to, what you have for us in it, Lord, and I pray that Father, the the word of the gospel would fall on previously deaf ears today, Lord, that you would, through a movement of your spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive Jesus alone as the risen King, our Savior, our Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So the word coronation was one that I carefully chose for today's title because it means exactly what I want to communicate. The word coronation means the crowning of a sovereign. I believe that in Mark 1, as Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, this is the coronation moment when the time is right for Jesus to fully embrace what was prepared for him by the Father, to embrace who he had been all along, and to begin his earthly ministry, which would start here and conclude in his death and resurrection. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's the second book in the New Testament. The first line of Mark reads this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is a good time to pause and just remind us that in the early church, up until the second century... The word gospel always meant good news that was the primary definition of that word good news in time it became a summary word for the Christian message so when we talk about the gospel we do mean the good news but we also sort of package it in as what Jesus came to do as the gospel in time That word took on a third meaning, and that is what we call the four books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call Gospels. So I just want to make sure you understand what those different words mean. When Mark wrote this, he did not think he was titling his book Gospel. He meant, This is the good news. This is the message of Jesus Christ. So keep reading with me. Mark 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For the outline today, I want to show you four things that Mark intends to communicate about Jesus. First, the king has arrived. The king has arrived. Now, if you remember, Mark's not doing what Matthew does. He's not starting with the genealogy. He's not tracing the Jewish lineage of Jesus back to David to impress you with his Jewish credentials. He's not going to great lengths to place Jesus in Bethlehem and put him in the, the manger stall. He's not really concerned with the fact that Herod sent the, uh, to kill the children, which forced them to go to Egypt, which fulfilled all these prophecies to get them in all these three places. Why? Why is Mark not concerned about that? I mean, it's cool, right? It's because if you're writing to Gentiles in Rome, they aren't particularly moved by these things. It's not their history. Now eventually it would become their history, but when this was first written, it was not. It's not that it's unimportant, it's that Mark isn't going to use the Old Testament as the backbone of his proofs to the Romans. It's just not the boom that would grip the audience as it would you when you get excited about it. In fact. In this entire beginning story of Jesus, Mark only uses one quotation from the Old Testament. And it's not even about Jesus. It's not a fulfilled prophecy about Jesus. Right out of the gate, Mark is talking about who? John. John the Baptist. Now, we know from Matthew and Luke that John has an entire backstory, parallels to Jesus. he was actually a cousin of Jesus, and his parents knew Mary and Joseph, and they were connected, and they got an angel visiting them, and told them to name him John. There were some parallels in that story. Mark says none of that, doesn't tell you about that. Mark quotes from Isaiah 40 about a messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord because he's primarily concerned about the role John is playing related to Jesus, and the name of that role is that of a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, a herald. It was a practice in ancient times that before a king would come and visit a territory, a herald would go before him with a message. He would prepare the way. He would prepare the people to receive the king, to alert them of his coming. You may appreciate if there was some big official coming to our service today that I let you know that I told you how to be prepared, that we might have vacuumed the carpet, you know, and got sort of ready for it. Uh, This was what they were doing in those days. In fact, to a Roman audience, they would not be able to comprehend a king if he did not have a herald to go before him and announce his arrival. So when Mark mentions John the Baptist's role, they immediately knew, oh, this is the herald. So whoever comes after John is the dude. That's what we're listening for. So, okay, we get it. We get what you're doing, Mark. Picking up what you're putting down. So there's a herald coming. Whatever the name that comes next is what we're listening for. See, we don't pick that up. They picked that up because that's how the world worked in ancient times. The text gives us some details of John's work, his preparation in verses 4 through 8. Now, if you're not really an in-depth Bible reader yet, you might read this description of John and think, oh, they're just out to make him sound like a weirdo. Like the The whole purpose of this is for you to walk away thinking, Jesus is a normal guy. John is a goofball. That's your whole reason for, for including this, Mark. I get it. Like, he's some hippie that lives in the forest and eats mushrooms and drives a Volkswagen. But no. But no. This is intended to call to mind one specific Old Testament prophet who is described exactly like this. Who is it? Say it again. Elijah. This is intended to... Evoke images of Elijah in your mind. Elijah was the prophet who came out of the wilderness dressed in the furry coat, and he was basically the prophet trendsetter for generations to come, such that it became the standard. He set the standard for the prophets. Wilderness, furry coat, and repentance became prophetic standards because of the influence of Elijah. So, Mark is telling you, John is a prophet after the order of Elijah. And Elijah, if, if we say Elijah like we'd normally do, is the great Old Testament prophet, John is the great New Testament prophet. He was preparing Israel to receive the king through a message of repentance. Now, that word, you need to know it. It means to turn away from sin. Repentance is to turn away from sin so that they would do that before the king arrived, so that they would be found faithful. I think there's a parable about that. John, in everything he did, was careful to point to the supremacy of Jesus. Now, you look at John, his whole life mission was to push people to Jesus, to show them him. And we would be wise to model our lives after that. John says repeatedly, I'm not the Christ, which might be hard to do when your crowds start picking up like John's did. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. Can I saying that about somebody? I shouldn't even be touching your feet, man. That's how great you are. Just imagine saying that to somebody. He is greater than I. All I've got is water. He's got Holy Spirit. And later in the ministry of John, when Jesus' crowds got bigger, remember there was a time, all of a sudden, Jesus' crowds now are getting real big. And Mark's crowds are starting to dwindle because all of them are going over here down the road. What does Mark say? Amen, hallelujah, that's the reason I came. That's the whole reason I exist. Wouldn't it be great, this is a separate sermon, wouldn't it be great to simultaneously have the boldness and humility that John had? Usually you got to pick one or the other. John had both. Mark started with the herald to communicate that the king had arrived. That's number one. Now number two, what are you trying to communicate? The king is affirmed. The king is affirmed. Read with me now Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus, there it is. Now they knew that's who the herald was pointing to. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or this is your first time studying Jesus, you might have a couple good questions in this reading, questions such as, why did Jesus need to be baptized? And maybe even, why would anyone need to be baptized? What was John doing? What was this? So the first thing that could possibly confuse you is the fact that John's baptism does not mean the same thing as the baptisms we're going to do today. Different baptism, okay? That's important. This was more limited in its scope. John's was a baptism of repentance only, meaning that people did it primarily to indicate to God that they were going to make, to make a conscious effort to embrace God's vision for life and behavior and obedience. I'm going to follow what God says is sin. I'm going to follow that. What he says is not. What he says to love, I'm going to love. What he says to hate, I'm going to hate. That's repentance. That's what that was about. This was a reform movement of John. And for the record, before I forget to say it, John's middle name is not the, and his last name is not Baptist, okay? Sometimes you got to just say things to make sure everybody knows. Uh, There was no John the Methodist, there was no John the Lutheran out there either. This was a title, John the Baptizer. So the actual title was John the Baptizer, so it was what he did, not some denominational. This is not the first man of the Baptist church or any of that, okay? no. Uh, they were just saying that he was a baptizer. That was what he was known for. It was his thing. John became known for this. Now, Jews were not traditionally baptizers. If you're thinking, you know, I've read the Old Testament. I don't, th- I don't remember ever hearing a story about people getting baptized in the Old Testament. And you'd be right. It's not a common practice, but it did happen. Here's when it happened. When someone who was not a Jew desired to become a Jew, they had a ceremony where you would essentially convert a conversion uh, ceremony that involved going under the water and being baptized. Again, not in the Bible, super rare, but we have historical records that it did occur. So John was picking up something about this. I'm, I'm leaving behind a whole way of life. I'm joining this new way of life. So John was picking up on that and making it his thing. Now, to complicate things about all of that, what we just said about repentance Jesus, the sinless one, shows up and asks to be baptized by John. Now, in Matthew 3, there's some parallels. In the same story, it's almost like Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, is like, they'll never get this. Uh, I need to include the part where where John is like, hey, hey, hold on now. I, I ought to be, you ought to be baptizing me. So that's in Matthew. That's not in Mark. In other words, this is a baptism of repentance, John says, and I've never seen you sin, Jesus. No one's ever seen you sin. So what are you doing here? This isn't for you. So why was Jesus baptized? You ever thought about that? Why was Jesus baptized? Well, I'll give you some options. They're all correct, by the way. Here's a list of correct options. If you study the gospel of John, his emphasis because John is the one that doesn't really have the, the deep baptism story either. It's Matthew and Luke. What we do have in John is is John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming over the hill, and he shouts out what? Anybody? What is he, when he sees Jesus coming, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John was a... a a Jewish man from the line of Levi. That means he's from the priestly tribe. It's possible that John was trying to show you that this was a presentation, a choice of the sacrificial lamb because that is the theme throughout the gospel of John. The priestly line was choosing their final sacrifice. That's possible. If you study Matthew and Luke, there's a statement made by Jesus to clear things up when he's pushed, why are you doing this? He says, this is done. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I interpret that as if I'm going to ask countless future generations to follow my example and do what I've done, I need to lead by example and to be baptized and to show them the way. Perhaps this was God giving us a great teaching tool for the Trinity. Where else in the Bible are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit not just named in the sentence together, but physically present in separate persons in the same scene. Many Trinitarian heresies have sprung up like a weed and died at the hands of this text. So we're thankful for it. All three members of the Trinity exist separately from one another in three distinct persons. You see that here. Unless Jesus was just a great ventriloquist. It's my beloved son, come on well pleased? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> Unless he was just great at that. And he had a, you know, don't look over here. Oh, there's the dove, unless he just had tricks, which he, he didn't. Then we have the appearing, the manifestations of all three members of the Trinity in one text. That's important for you to know where this is. Perhaps this was Jesus' way of endorsing the ministry of John the Baptist. John was a controversial figure. Being baptized, uh, Baptizing Jesus would have given a clear stamp of approval on his ministry for generations to come. But I think what Mark's end game, Mark's end game, all those others are true. I think Mark's end game in this account is the affirmation from God the Father on the ministry of Jesus and a ceremonial first moment to kick off his ministry. So I think it's the affirmation from Mark that's the primary purpose. And those others are true as well. But I think for Mark, it's about the affirmation of Jesus from God and hearing that in the crowd to give it a kickoff moment. Because up to this point, think about this. Up to this point in the some 30 years of Jesus' life, he was not a big deal. He was not known. He was not out there doing miracles for quarters on the street. He was not hustling neighborhood kids out of their cash by predicting the weather. No, he lived as a quiet carpenter in a nondescript small town of Nazareth, He studied the word. Yes, we know that. We know he knew the word. All we have is that little story when he's 12 years old. So we know he was sharp. He studied the word. But nothing about Jesus' life was remarkable up till this time, to the point that even his own family struggled to believe who he was when he became known. This was the kickoff moment. This was the moment where God affirmed this was his Messiah, He is revealing himself. He's always been the Messiah, but he's known now. Jesus was affirmed here, yes, by John, but also by God the Father, and it was go time from this moment forward. So Mark showed us that the king has arrived. The king was affirmed. Number three, he's going to show us that the king is able. The king is able. Here's your use of immediately right there in verse 12. It's almost as if Jesus is still wet from the baptism, still dripping, and he heads out into the wilderness to go be tempted. Read with me Mark 1:12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, this is where we remind ourselves Mark is the shorter gospel for a reason. We don't get the whole back and forth you're like, where is that, where's the part about the man shall not live by bread alone? And, you know, jump off the temple and see if God, that's not here. It's not here. Mark gives you the shorter version. We know what happened. We know that happened. It's real. Those things really happened. But Mark just chose not to include it. Mark doesn't include the victory of Jesus over Satan at all. This is where we have to grapple with a theme of Mark that we may not like reading it. A major theme of Mark's gospel is suffering. Suffering is a major theme of Mark's gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, yes. However, he's the Messiah who suffered. Mark's concern here is not primarily that Jesus bested Satan out in the wilderness. I feel that that's what Matthew was going for though he did best Satan in the wilderness, hear me, his primary concern is that the reader sees that Jesus went through trials and temptations just like we do. That's his main purpose. We need to know, this is good for us, our king, our Messiah, did not just float down on a cloud from heaven, live in a palace where his needs were met by servants, and was surrounded joining a member of the Finer Things Club. No, our king immediately... After the crowning moment of recognition from God and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit went out into a test where he could endure hunger, temptation, and danger. In some small way, I can't help but see this as a microcosm of the Christian life. After a great moment of success and fanfare at the waters of baptism's joys, there often follows a dry period of temptation and attack from the enemy. The Christian life, no matter what you're told, is not a series of constant mountaintop experiences. No, it is filled with its share of wilderness and hunger. And if you're following Jesus, you're following someone who knows what it's like to stare Satan in the face on day 39 of a fast in the middle of nowhere and give him no ground. Jesus is an able king. He's an able king. He is not some trust fund, silver spoon, nepotism pick for the role of Messiah who could not hack it in the real world. No, Jesus came right out of the waters of baptism and went to work. He went to the land that the Jews called cursed, where they believed the demons lived, to a place where the wild animals thrived and never once sinned in 40 days of hunger. Suffering would be part of his mission. And it seems that he took Satan out early, to show how able he really is. And in the chapters to come, we will see after binding the strong man, Jesus comes to plunder his house by setting people free from their bondage. Those are in the chapters to come. The king arrived. The king is affirmed. The king is able. Number four, the king is announcing. The king is announcing. Read Mark 1, 14 through 15 with me. Now, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Isn't it mind-boggling how many people confuse the message of Jesus and his ministry? Is it fair to say that out in the world as you've talked to people, there's some degree of confusion about what Jesus is all about. Have you ever talked to somebody that just seemed like they didn't quite understand what this was all for, what this was all about? How often do you hear that Jesus came to be a good teacher? I, I think Jesus was a good teacher. That's what he came to do. Or how many times have you heard someone say, you know, Jesus, he, he had one message, and I always perk my ears up. Oh, really? I want to hear. It. Jesus had one message. It's just love, just Love. That's what Jesus came to do. Oh, okay. Or Jesus taught that we should, all he was about was that we should accept all people, that we should pursue our own happiness. Some combinations of those things. Now, I love you enough to tell you, there are nuggets of truth, just like all things. There's nuggets of truth in that. But the overwhelming primary supreme message of the ministry of Jesus Christ is summed up in verse 15. And you ought to circle it in your Bible and say... Blinking lights, this is what Jesus was all about. This is the announcement of heaven. This is the prophetic message. This is the preaching of Jesus. This is the preaching of the apostles. That's the proclamation for the church that we are supposed to take to the, to the ends of the world. And it is this. We proclaim, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Why? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. The inauguration of Jesus' ministry brought a piece of heaven to earth. The kingdom of God, the rule of God on earth, was nearer at this moment than it had ever been, chiefly because Jesus, the Son of God, was there. And Jesus was preaching and proclaiming now. It was on. It had begun. And because the Messiah was present The message that John had been preaching, which is repentance, could be added to and fulfilled. One thing I always think is interesting here. Jesus never came and said, okay, now that I'm here, things are different now. It's all forgiveness all the time. Just forget that John the Baptist guy, all that repentance stuff. He was like my placeholder, really. Uh, I appreciate all the repenting that you guys did. But it's a different era now. It's grace time. Thanks, John. I've got it from here. No more repenting. Does Jesus say that? No, that never happened. Jesus built upon the foundation just like he did, like John built upon the prophets. Jesus built upon John. John said, repent because God is coming and we're not ready. We're dirty. We're unclean. Jesus, knowing who he was, said, repent. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Continue turning from your sin. Continue hating your sin. Continue in repentance. But the good news, there's got to be some good news, right? This is the gospel, the evangelion, right? Don't just stop there. It's not just repentance. Pair repentance with belief in the gospel, with the faith and hope And love that Christ does bring with the forgiveness and grace and mercy that he offers to you at the cross to be forgiven from your sin in the victory that he has over death and hell in his resurrection. Let the gospel inform and empower your repentance and infuse your repentance with faith in the one who makes it all possible. So, church, the message of Jesus is not ambiguous. There's no reason for us to be out there in the world and say, I, I don't really know what Jesus was all about. I don't be a good person. I, I don't know, love people. No, no. Listen, repent and believe in the gospel. That's We have to have that memorized. And when someone says, well, what's repentance? We gotta be ready to turn from your sin, to hate your sin in the way that God hates it. And, Someone says, well, what's the gospel? Okay, to believe that you are a sinner and without intervention from God, you cannot save yourself. Before a holy God, you are not righteous, you're unclean. However, God, loving you, sent his son Jesus to pay that debt, to take that sin on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death on the cross. And by your faith in him, all of your sin gets transferred to the cross and taken away, and you get to rise with Jesus in the resurrection when he comes and have a place in eternal life with him. That's the gospel. So when someone says, repent and believe the gospel, be ready. Speed dial. I know what repentance is. I know what the gospel is. I got it. Can you do that, church? If you can't do it, go home and practice it. Write it out. I don't want to hear people, you'll be on the news someday, and I'll track you down. When they say, well, what is the message of uh, Christianity? If you had to sum up. Christianity in one word, sir, what would it be? Uh, just, uh, just uh, you know, love, everybody. I don't want to hear you say it. I'll find you, okay? Say what the Bible says, okay? I'm so far off, I don't even know where I left. All right, so Jesus came announcing. He was not a silent do-gooder doing works of charity behind the scenes. He did not abide by the quote that I have come to detest, preach the gospel and use words if necessary, makes no sense. No, he used words to preach the gospel because the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. So let's recap what Mark wants you to know about Jesus. He's a king. He tells us that by using the ancient method of sending the herald to prepare the way, and that was John the Baptist. He's affirmed by God. When Jesus was baptized as our perfect example, the heavens opened up and God endorsed Jesus right there as his son, the Messiah. He is able. Jesus is not the king who never leaves the safety of the palace walls, who never sees any real action. No, he endured hunger and temptation and trials from Satan himself and overcame, all without sinning one time. And he is a king with a message to proclaim. He is a preaching Suffering Messiah. Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is near. That's his message, and this is going to be the theme of the book. That's it right there. That's the inaugural address at the coronation ceremony. So, how are we to walk with Jesus after hearing this? Well, I think it changes the way we interact with Jesus. We interact with him as our king. With all respect, and authority due to him. We interact with him as the son of God who is the full representative power of the almighty creator Yahweh God in the flesh. We are to interact with him as one who has suffered real trials and has been through everything you've been through. He's not a detached deity. And we are to repent when he says to repent and we are to believe when he says to believe. May we always recognize and walk with Jesus as our king and live with an urgency to manifest the kingdom of God here by the proclamation of the gospel message. Pray with me.